Pristina is everywhere. A podcast brought to you by Radio Otherwise. Manifesta 14, Pristina. Hello, this is Pristina is everywhere. A podcast brought to you by Radio Otherwise. A program of Manifesta 14, Pristina, situated at the Center for Narrative Practice. My name is Simon Kurte, and I'm pleased to welcome you to the sixth episode of this series by Anissa Zecho, talking about the poems of June Jordan with Salma Salman. Tune in to listen to a conversation between Anissa Zecho, an art historian, curator and educator who co-founded Wrong Wrong, a space for art and theory in Amsterdam, and Salma Salman, an artist whose works alternate between sensitive, harsh and ironic gestures that reveal identity attributes, role expectations and stereotypes. Welcome. Welcome to Pristina is Everywhere, the podcast series of Manifesta 14. My name is Arniza Zeko. I am a writer, curator and art historian. Today, I am at the recording studios of the Rijks Academy in Amsterdam, and I welcome you to this episode, which we titled From Kosovo to Berkeley. It is on the poems of June Jordan. For this episode, I have invited artist, poet, and activist Selma Selman. Selma is one of the artists taking part in Manifesta 14 in Pristina. I invited Selma to read together a series of poems titled Kosovo Fugues in Seven Parts. This series was written by the poet June Jordan during the Kosovo War in 1999. It was written precisely between April 1st and April 29. This period of time coincides with the NATO bombings of Yugoslavia and the highest moments of the war. It also coincides with protests of the Third World Liberation Front students at Berkeley in California who went on a hunger strike demanding better funding for their studies. First, I will give an introduction on June Jordan, Selma Selman and the poems. Then we'll read the poems together with Selma and talk about them. June Jordan is a poet that has been accompanying my thoughts and artistic research for some years now. I discovered her work in 2015 in Athens as I was working for Documenta 14. My colleague Paul B. Preciado brought a book of hers of June Jordan's poems to our office on the Metsovo Street. June Jordan was born in Harlem, New York on July 9, 1936. For me, she's a seminal writer in so many ways. As the poet Adrian Rich writes about her, June Jordan's poetry embraces a half a century in which she dwelt as a poet, intellectual, and activist. Yet she was also a teacher, observer, and recorder. She believed in and lived through the urgency of the word, along with actions, She tried to resist abuses of powers and violation of dignity in and beyond her country. And this is clear in the poems that we'll read today. I love the fact that next to poetry, she also wrote children's fiction, speeches, political journalism, musical plays. I deeply admire the fact that she was committed to life and teaching through language and body in a unified manner. In her poem, Poem of Commitment, she writes... I commit my body and my language. 
In this spirit of commitment through body and language, she founded in the 1960s a poetry program for black and Puerto Rican youth in Brooklyn called The Voice of the Children. And in the same spirit, later in her life, she created Poetry for the People in 1991, a course in the writing and teaching of poetry for students at the University of California, Berkeley. This program is still active today. June Jordan was the most personal of political poets, Adrian Rich writes, in the preface to the collected poems titled Directed by Desire. I would say Jordan often writes of her frustrations with the systematic exclusion of female and domestic voices from the general discussions of politics, human rights, and freedom. She writes about the erotic charges of female bodies, reclaiming desire and love as important interlocutors and contributors of political discourse. Jordan brings forward the voice of women, black women, bisexual women, feminists, and different quests of freedom. She writes about sexual oppression, war, Western capitalism, and racial struggle. Body and language. The commitment to both is articulated through erotic discharges, desire, what is kept out of sight, undercover, and what directly refers to the body. How can the longing for a physical person become entangled with longing for wider solidarity? How can autobiography become a fictional tool to liberate the subjectivity from the prescribed identity roles? For today's reading, it is not a coincidence that I invited poet and activist Selma Selman. She's a contemporary artist, but has inspired a wider conversation through the months that we've known each other. Being brought up in the Roma community in Bosnia and studying in Bosnia in the United States, I believe that Selma is also committing to language and the body. Through her artistic work, her poems, performances, and activism, she speaks about sexuality, gender, and also alternative strategies of art. She's also the founder of an institute for education of young Roma girls in Bosnia. This summer, she took part in Manifesta 14, showing some of her works, but also she performed the work You Have No Idea through the streets of Pristina. The work refers to the war, it refers to the pains of young women and to all the inner sufferings of social injustice. In Selma's work, like in the poems of June Jordan, personal struggles lean towards collective symptoms of alienation and hope. Some of the works often question how the quotidian and the fragility of sentiments is inseparable from the wider social-political spectrum. And that's why Selma will be the perfect interlocutor to read the poems with me today. As many of you know about the war on Kosovo, it also lives very much in our memories. Yet, it was a beautiful surprise to see how June Jordan connects it with what is happening in Berkeley. The Third World Liberation Front started in 1969 to demand self-determination in education through the establishment of the Third World College, whose curriculum would be designed for and taught by people of color. As some winning strikes were happening there, the struggle continued, and the students were mobilized in 1999. They organized a hunger strike 
in that period for more funding, faculty, and the Multicultural Community Center. And this is what June Jordan brings forward in her poems. Now, before the reading, I want to welcome Selma. Hi, thank you so much, Anissa, for inviting me. Hi, Selma. So, we met, actually, a few months ago, earlier this year, at the library of the Rijks Academy, where you are a resident, and I was a guest resident in February. We met over a book of Susan Sontag, another American writer who, just as June Jordan in May 1999, wrote a beautiful article on the Kosovo War and lived in the region. Selma, what are your memories of the war? You were born in the 90s, just as Yugoslavia was dissolving, and you were a child during that period. Would you like to talk about that? Yeah, I think that's a really wonderful question. And uh, the reason why I wanted actually to read a book is because I was really much interested in the pain and questioning what does it mean to be the, in the pain. I was born in 1991 in Bosnia and the war started in 92. So I'm not really a child who remembers everything. And my first very moment of the war is just a memory of hunger. And that's the only image I have. And I've been like questioning myself why I don't remember much. It's just because I was somehow pushing my memory down because I was kind of, um, how would I say, probably afraid of even like remembering the details. And the only thing which left in my mind as a memory is this hunger, an image of hunger. And I've been like kind of, thinking like why now hunger is the memory of the war and if I can symbolically redefine the hunger for me would be if I would actually symbolically question hunger in terms of the language that would mean that I'm actually hungry to get my voice heard in a way and that's the reason why I started um kind of writing poetry, which is somehow very fragile, but just because it's so personal. And um, when I write, I often write in a way that um, I'm writing and I think that no one is going to read my poetry. And that's why it's also very painful. Regardless of how fragile it is, I think it becomes anti-fragile because I have these, how would I say, a strength to kind of personally describe what happened for me in a certain moments of my life. Thank you, Selma. And of course, I love your poems. I was thinking there is also so many wars in the region and like the war signing your birth is Bosnia and also the war that we will read about is then a couple of years later against the ethnic cleansing of Albanians by the Serbs. Mm, you also have a special relationship to Kosovo itself. I know your mother was born there. Could you talk a little bit about that and thinking about also all the different ethnicities coexisting in the area? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, Kosovo was, was pretty much very kind of uh, a present in my childhood because my mom lived in Kosovo till age of 12 and of course during that time it was uh, former Yugoslavia so she was kind of able to travel from one country to another very easily but then somehow when the war started 
she was stuck in Bosnia and somehow she couldn't go back to Kosovo ever again which somehow was uh, also painful to her. And for me, it was very interesting because, uh, you know, like she spoke Albanian, as I remember when I was a child, but then like somehow through time she forgot. And uh, we remember Kosovo as, as, a, as a country which is so far and that you're not supposed to go there. And the fear that, that she had of going back, which is really painful. I would say. And um, of course, my mom was kind of uh, like she wanted to go back, but also because of the political situation in Bosnia, it was almost almost impossible. And uh, somehow like also being Roma for her made it more difficulties because she was kind of stuck and she didn't have kind identities. She didn't belong to Kosovo. She didn't belong to Bosnia. And uh, it took her time to kind of get her identity back. But she lost, somehow she lost her childhood because of the war. Thank you. But you, Selma, went back and performed there this year. You performed this beautiful piece titled You Have No Idea which starts first as soft-spoken words in the crowd, and then it increases in volume in repeating the phrase, you have no idea, and ending up screening that. I know the piece was first conceived in New York. I wanted to ask if you could talk a little bit more about what is this work, what is you have no idea, and how was it to perform it in Pristina? First, I have to say that I really like to go back to Kosovo. Somehow I feel accepted. And the funny thing is that I was born on the 17th of February, which is the Independence Day of Kosovo. So I have a lot of friends who really love me there, and I really love them. But regarding the project, the performance, you have no idea. Um, you know, like, I performed it on the sunny day, It was very hot and I had like a white dress and I was looking directly at the library and on the landscape of Kosovo and around me there was like a lot of people that I didn't know. You know, like it's Manifesta, so a lot of artists, a lot of curators, a lot of like audience were there and I found myself for the first time vulnerable in that position. Vulnerable because I'm talking about the place which was kind of hurt, abandoned, the place with a lot of uh, struggle. And I'm there to say to people, you have no idea. And I was questioning myself, do I have right to say that? But you have no idea is the work which is indirectly and directly referring to all of us. When I say you have no idea, I'm actually talking about myself, about everything what I went through, including the war. Even though I'm never directly speaking about the war in my work, it's always indirectly because of the certain situations which happened in the war. But you have no idea, it's, it's collectively about all of us. It's about trauma, but it's also about this strength. It's about empowerment and it's about, you know, having this kind of uh, freedom and strength to share your pain with others and for them to accept it. Beautiful, thank you. And these words that you say, strength and voicing, 
as in the context of trauma and having both the personal and the political, I believe that is what strongly June Jordan does in her poems and what connects us today. So now I think, dear uh, listeners, we will read to you the poems of June Jordan. I will start first, and we're picking our books. You can hear a bit of the noise. Am I first or you're first? I am first, I think. I, I think I'm first. Are you... This is... I think it starts here. Kosovo Fuge in seven parts. I think this is me. Okay, that is you. <laughs> That's your right, Salma. <laughs> but if you want to go, no. it's fine. Let's go. But I really like this part. Mm-hmm. Running and running into the night, asking only asking. What about moonlight? What about moonlight? Kosovo Fuge in seven parts, April 7, 1999. Nothing is more cruel than the soldiers who command the widow to be grateful that she's still alive. April 9, 1999. Only the ones without water, only the ones without bread, only the ones without guns. There is international TV, there is no news. There is enemies proliferate. The homeless multiply. And I watch and I wait. I'm already far and away, too late, too late. Poem number three, April 9, 1999. For Ethelbert. In Brooklyn, when the flowering for Scythia escaped the concrete patterns of tight winter days, I didn't think about long distances. Or F-117, in contrast to a lover or an army on the ground, up close and personal, as washing out a shirt by hand. The soap suds and the fingers and the cloth, an ordinary ritual to interdict the devils of 2,000 LB bombs dropped from 25,000 feet above the children, scrambling from the schoolyard, suddenly aflame, until you called from Washington, D.C. to say, oh, let me be that shirt. April 10, 1999. The enemies proliferate by air, by land. They bomb the cities, they burn the earth, They form the families into miles and miles of violent exile. 30 or 40 or 81,000 refugees just before this checkpoint. Or who knows where they disappear. The woman cannot find her brother. The man cannot recall the point of all the papers somebody took away from him. The rains fail to purify the river. The darkness does not slow the trembling message of the tanks. Hundreds of houses on fire, and still the enemies do not seek and find the enemies. April 2nd, 1999. Per MR. Through nights of bleeding, feet and babies lost to one. Misstep on ice or stony mountain trail. My peaceful friend relinquishes his pencil 
and begins to inch his way towards a gun as I release the rifle, nestling in my head, and then attempt to hold him close. April 12, 1999. Sex, food, and war. Cyberspace addicts insist the buttons and the online icons indicating universal on and off and stop and go deliver just about everything you know. And more, everything just about as good as actual anesthesia, actual caress. And like the email lover claiming love, love, who will not alter all the virtual terms of the engagement and obliterate the anyway invisible, beloved, so do computer-driven warriors claim, rescue, mercy, moral imperative. But meanwhile, blast and kill the living who need real-time face-to-face and mouth-to-mouth recovery. April 29, 1999. Dedicated to the Third World Liberation Front students at UC Berkeley. You can't help but worship with his raggedy last vigil against ethnic cleansing under a full moon close to the Campanile, where all the bells hold still. And not the president, and not the chancellor, and not the CEO, and not the army chief of staff, and not his holiness himself can influence the candles lit, intermittent, and among the young believers breaking bread at midnight, as their oath to stay together, aching for another light, to bless the weather and the outcome of this whispering, this unruly witness. From Kosovo to Berkeley, no more starve or freeze, no more torch or shoot or cease, no more purging of the people. So they talk and sign their names in chalks. They give up food and bed and roof as proof that they will not sleep before the morning wakes the world on just such sweet demands. And hungering a few, they stand the darkness down. Yeah. So these were the poems. Yeah, they're really, really touching, you know. And um, when you read them for like a few times, you understand how personal they are. But they're also a lot about love, you know. And the question is, which I have for you, what do you think as a writer, you know, can love be political in a way that it can rescue something? You know, can love in writing do a revolution mm. in regards to June's work, right? Yeah, I mean, I believe that is one of the strengths and the most beautiful things of her poetry is really bracing the sort of feminist ideas of how the personal is political and writing about the power of love mm-hmm. in writing. And I believe in a way her poems are almost made for speaking and for like the spoken voice mm-hmm. and there is also in the poems that we read there is this beautiful combination of her personal story for example calling with a lover and talking about what is happening in Kosovo and in Berkeley 
sort of embracing the personal pains and failures of her life or of the moments of her daily life with a wider political spectrum. And yes, I do believe indeed that love emerging or opening up to love also in artistic practice and in writing can have that urgency. And at this moment, of course, we are reading these poems about a war and um, about student uprising in 1999 but we and love, but we read them as Europe is also in war, thinking of Russia and Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So there is something very uncanny somehow to read them again now and to hope and to see like how to combine love into the political discourse about war. Yeah, I agree. I mean, when you read these poems now, of course, you can relate to the today's situation, not only to the war, but also um, about the protests and, for example, what's happening in Iran with the, with the, you know, a female revolutions, I would say. And um, reading the poems for me is almost like I'm reading a text which can be used for the protests, you know, which can be used for manifestos, which can be used to kind of make a group of people screaming certain words for the better tomorrow. And I was, I would say that that's something that makes it very universal, but also present these days. I cite again from one of the poems that we read, sex, food and war, cyberspace addicts, insist the buttons and the online icons. The written now, more than 20 years ago, it resonates so true. And that period, I think, was really the beginning also of the spectacle of war from a safe distance in like home televisions. And now our generation seems to have been so used to that, that at times almost desanitized from that. But um, here she says that, and another quote, love, love, who will not alter all the virtual terms of the engagement that obliterate the anyway invisible beloved. I guess it is not just a political statement, but also the feeling of really losing everything in one second. Well, um, this was maybe an introduction to those poems. I hope, dear readers, you enjoyed them. We're thinking on how to continue later this conversation, perhaps to translate the poems of Jun Jordan in Albanian and in Bos- Roma. Roma, Bosnian. We don't have it in yeah. Bosnian. Yeah. And I have to admit, this was the first time, actually, I heard of June Jordan from you and I'm very grateful for that I'm really inspired and I just want to refer to like um, one part of the poem which really worked so much on me and really made me emotional and reminded me on the genocide which happened in Srebrenica nothing is more cruel than the soldiers who command the widow to be grateful that she's still alive Like, this is so broad that you can write, like, essay just about these six lines. Like, what does it mean to be grateful? You know, what does it mean that she's still alive, she's a widow, but the soldier made her to be grateful? You know, like, I'm talking here about... um, I don't know how even how to, to explain it. It's not about pain. 
anymore. It's more. It, there is so more. Nothing is more cruel than the soldiers who command the widow to be grateful that she is still alive. Like when someone convinces you that you have to accept to go down on your feet to just to beg to stay alive. Like, and that's something which happened, unfortunately, in Sabrinica, where many women were raped. Like thousands, thousands of girls, age 11, you know, like they were kind of young girls and experiencing such a terrified thing. So I think this is kind of very beautifully explained. I don't know. Yeah. The power of putting it into words. Yeah. The commitment to both language and the body, as June Jordan wrote. A homage to June Jordan. Thank you, Selma, for reading with me and discussing the poems and sharing your voice. Thank you, Anissa, for reminding me. It was really nice to talk with you about June Jordan's poems. This was From Kosovo to Berkeley, part of Pristina is Everywhere, the Manifesta 14 podcast. Till next time. The Dua. Thank you for tuning in today to Pristina is Everywhere by Radio Otherwise. You were listening to Anissa Zecho's episode talking about the poems of June Jordan with Salma Salman. As we build a participatory radio program, we hope that you tune in every Thursday as we publish new content from our different series. Make sure to visit our website and follow our social media to find out about Manifesta for Team Pristina's numerous interventions and programs. Pristina is everywhere. A podcast brought to you by Radio Otherwise. Manifesta 14, Pristina. <laughs>